My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And our topic today is how to build your business no matter what. Sounds intense, I know. But it is a little intense because there's so many no-sayers and people who just don't want to give you the time of day. And so you just have to persevere. And my guest today knows all about that. Her name is Catherine Finney. She's the author of the book. I'm going to swear right now, get yourselves, cover your ears if you're little kids, build the damn thing. Now, Catherine is an inventor, a visionary entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and startup champion who is the founder and managing general partner of Genius Guild. She's the chair of the Dooney Fund and founder and former CEO of Digital Undivided, a groundbreaking social enterprise focused on creating a world where black women own their own work. And I love this part. She's a Yale-trained epidemiologist. So she's good at, I guess she's kind of like identifying the epidemic, the problem of you know, how to build your business when people won't help you and they're not being helpful. And she is now attacking it. And she's been recognized for her pathbreaking work by the Aspen Institute, Entrepreneur Magazine, Marie Claire, Ebony, Inc. Magazine, Black Enterprise, and many, many more. Wow. And you're going to learn a bunch today. First of all, you're going to learn about how to think outside the box on what you're trying to build. It's very important because, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to want to put you back inside the box, but you got to break outside the box. And we're going to get very practical. We're going to talk about things like raising money, coming up with ideas, and how to do all these things when maybe people don't want to help you. So it's going to be very helpful. And we talked about the fundraising stuff on Full Mondays this week. So it's going to be something that we talked about in detail, but we're going to hear it from her as well. All right. So that's what we're doing. And I'm going to move right on to my small ask, which is so related to this. It's not about me this week. It's about the universe. Support an entrepreneur. Go find a product you have not tried. Try it out. Give them feedback. Spend some money on it. Support them. Give it to your friends. Help them build the damn thing. All right. And now on to the interview. As you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. And this week is no exception. So I started our talk by asking Catherine this question. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? The formative decision I had to make to get to where I am today is to make a conscious choice to be myself. And that was a very difficult decision being sort of a a quirky black girl (laughs) to to really sort of lean into my full personhood um, when my full personhood has been a threat to people. Um, and But I made that conscious choice because it is so much easier to be me than to be someone else. Um, it's more sustainable to be myself than to be someone else. I'm not very good at being someone else. I'm very good at being me, but not very good at being someone else. But that was a conscious decision I had to make. And it came with certain challenges because my identity isn't necessarily an identity that's celebrated, at least in America. And so there's things that I missed out on. There's a people I've pissed off as a result of that or who I made feel incredibly uncomfortable 
because of that decision and that choice that I made. But again, at the end of the day, it's far easier to be myself than someone else. I don't know how to be someone else very well. Well, clearly it's working out because you. I read this in your bio and I have to ask about it before we get into the topic today. You were honored by the Borough of Manhattan, where I live, with the Catherine Finney mm-hmm. Appreciation Day in 2015. I wish I had known I would have spent the day appreciating you. And that gave me, that gave me full you. long to tell you. I was like, when, how do I get that? Tell, tell us how that came about, because that's pretty amazing. It was a result of the work that I had done, um, not only with being one of the early women to found the startup and sell it, but also through my work with Digital Divided and really creating a space for more women of color, in particular, to get into the startup system. Um Prior to Digital Divide, there was no organization. There was no, no one was even really talking about um, Black women in the startup space, let alone Black people in the startup space. And so, you know, Digital Divide really created this sort of um, opportunity. It also, we also did this report called Project Diane that fundamentally changed venture capital. Um, It was the first report to really document the lack of women of color, but just really women in general in venture capital and how little funding we were getting. We did the first report in 2016. At that time, there was no other reporting, even Crunchbase, which is one of the big um, trackers of startups, weren't recording race or gender. So no one really knew. Now we live in a different world where we have all these things sort of tracked. But when we first started, there wasn't. And we found that less than 88 Black women-led startups were in the U.S. at that time. And uh, Black women had raised 0.0006% of venture capital, basically none. Um, and so that work and that work that I did and how it influenced a whole generation of, of women-led startups, particularly Black women-led startups, um, led me to to get that honor from Gail Brewer, the, uh, the Manhattan Borough president. It was it was such an honor. Um, it's one of those cool things that you you can bring your mom to uh, <laughs> and say, look, all the things I put you through, it was worth it. I had my own day in the borough of Manhattan. <laughs> so you just gave us some stats and they're, uh, they're, you know, I think we've talked about this on the show before. We've had people talking about, in particular, female venture capital underrepresentation. The numbers are, you know, two to three percent overall. You just highlighted, you know, a- another level of of just complete exclusion from the market. You're right. Eighty eight African American women getting funding is basically nothing. And and when you just think about the contributions of Black women in American society, it just it, it's it, 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 it like it's kind of mind blowing. So. Let's get into that because your new book is called Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business When You're Not a Rich White Guy. Now, that title for some people may be like, maybe make them a little uncomfortable, but you're kind of, I mean, you're putting it out there. Let's start talking about why that's happening before we get into solutions. You talk about in the book early on one of the reasons why, you know, people get boxed out, people who are different. And it's this notion of pattern matching, which is, I hadn't actually heard the term before, believe it or not. And and when I was reading that, you know, I, I kind of understood the concept, but I think the term is really helpful. Talk about what's going on, pattern matching, and, you know, and how you encountered that in your own startup journey. Yeah. You know, pattern matching is really simply because I'm a part of a certain network and I've seen success come out of the certain network or space, then that means that 
all success is going to come out of that certain network or space or that type of person. In the context of, of the startup world, it really shows in the sense of because every successful startup we've invested in has come from a 25-year-old white guy from Stanford. We're going to continue to only invest in 25-year-old white guys from Stanford because that's where quote-unquote success has come. Interestingly enough, conversely, that means also all the failed startups that you invested in also came from 25-year-old <laughs> guys from Stanford too. So there's an inherent fallacy in that sort of belief. And that belief has really permeated throughout Silicon Valley and the investment community for, for decades. And it's created this space where those who fall outside of that don't get the opportunity to, to succeed. And if you do, it's only one person who falls outside of that. And if that one person doesn't succeed, that means everyone else who also has that same identity is not giving the space as well to participate. So it creates this system where it's only the same people get funded over and over and over again. I mean, it doesn't allow opportunity for other people to come in, new ideas to come in, and new networks. You know, if you look, and I encourage people to do this, go Google the top venture capital firms and then look at the team page. And what you will mm. find <laughs> is that there are a lot of people from the same background, whether it's racial background, whether it's educational background, whether it's where they work for background. And, you know, there is uh, there is some good, of course, in having people who went to great schools and, they, you know, the, all that stuff's great. But the problem is, as you just identified, it leads to this sort of like groupthink where yep. you miss out on the contrarians, on the people who fall outside your network, on the people who are doing things different. And it, it it really is lazy at the end of the day because like the job of a venture capitalist is to find the hidden gem. And that means that you need to staff yourself in a way that allows you to do that. So it's a really important thing. And I think everybody talks about diversity. I mean, find me somebody who doesn't say that they value diversity, but do they actually eat their own cooking when they're building their fund and their team? You know, that's the question. I, I'm curious, like Catherine, you know, as you think about that, you know, you you went out, you started a company, you, you know, you it's interesting, you have this kind of unusual background, a contrarian background, epidemiologist out of Yale, moves into fashion. Uh, blogging and then eventually a company around that. Like, wh what did what was it like for you when you just when you pitches these events? And I'm sure like people were like, "You're wonderful," but then that they don't write the check. How does it go down? I mean, when I started, which was back in the Stone Ages, right? This is in 2000 <laughs> and, and 2009. It it wasn't that people when I pitched or I talked about my company that they had low expectations. Mm. They had no expectations of me, and that's a, a different level when people just don't think you can do it, period. Not that you can't do it well, but you just can't do it. And that was very, very difficult for someone like me, you know, this overachieving Yale graduate, Ivy League school sort of person to just have people point blank say that I couldn't do it and just dismiss me in that sort of way. And it was just in, and now in hindsight, I think about just the the bravado in which they did that. I mean, these were like mediocre guys. I'm, I remember in particular one incubator that I came uh, through, um, I'm probably the one of the most successful people to come out of that incubator. Um, yet the way in which I was dismissed by colleagues, by other startup founders, all white men was just absurd. None of whom fast forward, you know, 12, 13 years later have remotely reached the success that I reached. 
but they were so convinced that they were right and 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 that I wasn't going to be able to do what I was able to do. And I just remember doing one pitch session where um you know, it's me in front of, you know, a group of people who weren't diverse pitching an a, a idea for a diverse company and being told that I didn't relate to other black women because I had an accountant by a white guy in the audience. And, you know, as a person of color, as a marginalized person, I knew I couldn't respond the way I wanted to respond to him because <laughs> I wanted to like, you know, say some choice words <laughs> to him. Um, but I knew that I couldn't because if I did, because of pattern matching and all these other things, I would not have been allowed to A, come back. And then almost any other black woman who was pitching or being a part would have also had a deeper challenge because it would have been your difficult, your bossy, your bitter, mm. your whatever. And it's like, no, you just insulted me in front of a group of investors and basically dismissed me. And it was really difficult. I was always spending a, quite a bit of time navigating that. So much time that I didn't get to spend as much time on my business. And I think that's one of the things that happens to entrepreneurs of color and women entrepreneurs is that we have this other layer of work that we have to do on top of the work of our business. And we don't get to put that energy fully in our business, which is where it should be. And so as an investor myself, I say to my founders, like your job isn't to do racial sensitivity training for people. <laughs> your job is to build a great company and don't allow that to be put on you because you, you're going to spend so much time doing that that you're not going to put the time necessarily to build and grow and scale your company. Yeah. You've hit the nail on the head there. I completely agree I mean, on a number of fronts. Number one is the fact that, you know, you were, your ability to respond, like if, if you had been a different person and you had come back with a really plucky response, people would have said, Oh wow, what a great outcome. Like, I love that they kind of challenged me. Likely had you done that, it would have been, well, she's difficult or whatever. And, and so you're mm -hmm. carrying a different weight. So I, I, I think that is something that maybe people don't necessarily realize that is important to highlight is that your sort of your toolbox is different and your ability to respond yeah. is different. But second of all, getting into this is, yeah, you're right. It's not your job to to train the world. It's your job to build your company. And so let's talk about how one does that because there is a state of play. It is changing. Let's hope it's changing, but slowly. And you're part mm -hmm. of that. But as you, you know, we have founders who are listening to the show right now who are nodding their heads furiously because they say like, I get it, Catherine, or maybe folks who didn't see this before, but now are realizing, wow, this is something I hadn't thought about. It's okay that you didn't get it because we're all in the same boat rowing together. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. 
FOMO. What can people do? Like, let's just take fundraising. What are the alternative? If, if you go into the room and mm-hmm. people just kind of like don't get it, um, what other things can you do? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of other di- different things. There's new types of financing called revenue-based financing, um, which is really, really interesting. It's almost like um, a cross between, I, I say, a loan and equity <laughs> at the same time where um, you receive a certain amount of money based upon your revenue that you generate in your company. Um, and usually you pay it back within, you know, once your revenue reaches a certain target, it triggers a payback and the payback is over a certain period with a certain percentage, you know, increase. Um, sometimes that also can be equity. So sometimes it's, you take a small percentage in equity and then they sort of do the payments out um, after the equity comes in. There's also um, equity crowdfunding, which has really gained quite, quite a bit of steam lately. Um, platforms like Republic, Main Street, um, which allow you to raise from non-traditional investors, right? Smaller investors. So it used to be you had to be what was called an accredited investor in order to invest in startups because it's such a high risk um, investment. They wanted to make sure that people who, who could afford to lose the money or the people who are losing possibly their money. However, with the changes that happened with the Jobs Act, which really kind of opened up um, investing and particularly startup investing for smaller um, investors, you had the rise of these crowdfunding equity platforms or equity crowdfunding platforms like Republic, which allow you to invest for as little as $100 in a startup. So if you're a founder and you have a really robust network of people they may not be able, you know, to write you ten, fifteen thousand dollar checks, but if you have enough network, a big enough network of people who can write a hundred, two hundred dollar checks, and you get them to write it, you can raise a significant amount of money for your startup. Okay, those are both really great ideas, and we—I don't think we've talked about them much on this show. So I'm just going to dig in a little, and I have a question for okay. you. Uh, so, on the revenue-based financing, this is actually quite interesting. You see this. And emerging markets. So I spent a lot of my time investing in Latin America. I've also spent time looking at ecosystems in Africa and Asia. And in markets where it's, there's no local stock exchange, where there's it's difficult to generate exits, investors are more and more using these because you never have to sell the company. You can get paid back based on the success yep. of the company. So this is, I did not know that existed in America. Now, the equity crowdfunding like Republic is a great example. I have seen that as well. I've actually invested in campaigns. I think it's a great way to go. You still have to do your homework. You always have to mm-hmm. do your homework, mm-hmm. but it's a wonderful mm-hmm. alternative way to say, you know what, I'm going to go straight to the people. So, Catherine, when we think about those two types of raising capital, do you have any, you know, I think probably some people are listening right now, writing, writing, write down some names, any places where we can send listeners to learn more? Well, for revenue based financing, um, you can definitely look at Founders First Capital, um, which is based out of California, which is a really interesting sort of platform. Um, in terms of equity crowdfunding, I mean, Republic is kind of the the big dog in the space, but there's others like Main Street and other platforms that you can look at as well. Um, I think starting at those three places, you're going to get kind of far and that will lead you to other possible places as well. So you, you, you start this company, The Budget Fashionista, you sell it, you know, seven figure exit, excellent. And you decide that the next step in your career is to build and run something called Digital Undivided. Talk about what you were trying to achieve there and what you built. 
After I sold the budget fashionista, I went to go work for another woman-led startup called Blogger, which then was also um, subsequently bought. And while there, I noticed I was going to conferences and I was speaking, and I noticed that there were no women and definitely no women of color. Um, I used to joke to my then husband that I would go to these conferences and it would never be any lines for the women's room. It was like lines around the, <laughs> the men's room, but it was never Only place a in the whole wide world, room. right? Yeah. Right. It was just kind of like, wow, at least the patriarchy allows us to go to the bathroom in peace. But, um, and so started Digital Divided really as a way to sort of gather all the Black and Latinx women um, in the startup space. And there wasn't that many at that time, but I knew that we existed. And really, you know, come together. Now the organization is, you know, pretty much scaled it pr- pretty significantly. Um, I think it's in five locations, you know, an eight-figure budget, you know, all those sort of things. But when we started, it was so hard because there was a pattern matching and people didn't see mm. black women as successful startup owners. <laughs> and they didn't see us as a part of the startup community and ecosystem, which was really, really tough as we were building. In 2020, you decided to build the Genius Guild, which is a $20 million venture fund and studio that invests in black founders. Talk about how you came to the decision to do that and how you actually operationalized that plan. Yeah. So I came in the decision to do that really through the pandemic, I think all of us made some pretty tough and interesting decisions during the pandemic, both personal and professional. It forced us to stop. Mm. And I think sometimes you're so constantly moving that you're reacting rather than really absorbing information and being really proactive with your decision-making. And so the pandemic allowed me to stop and to, to really think about what I was doing on many areas of my life. And one was in terms of what I wanted to do professionally. And in many ways, Digital and Divided, the company I founded and ran, was a precursor to Genius Guild. Mm. Um, But Genius Guild, this concept of having this thesis that Black entrepreneurs generate returns for themselves, for their community, and for their investors, believe it or not, that was fairly controversial (laughs) prior to Mm -hmm. 2020 thesis to have, to have that sort of very direct lens. So the world wasn't ready for what what I wanted to bring at that point. Um, But in 2020, they were. And it was all these different things. I think the pandemic, obviously, George Floyd. I am from Minneapolis. I grew up about six blocks away from where he was murdered. So for me, it was the reaction wasn't just, you know, here is uh, a black man who was murdered. It's like, here's my black man who was murdered. And here's my community that I come from. Like, these yeah. are my people. Like, you know, George Floyd was my neighbor in, in many ways. Um, and so it hit me a little bit differently than I think others, maybe a little bit deeper because I knew a lot of people involved in it. And I knew the city and I know that community. And so all these things kind of came together. And it was like, if there's a time in which I can do this thesis and people would listen and I would get have the space to be able to execute it, it's now. Um, and, and so I started Genius Guild and really started to think about, um, what it is I wanted to do, you know, operationalizing a venture fund is pretty straightforward. (laughs) Like, um, it's pretty established how you actually do it from the technical standpoint. But then I started to think of how do I want this to be different than what's already out there? And one of the things that we did was we spent a lot of time on core values. 
Like, who are we and what is it that we believe in? And how do we operate in this world? And how do we want to operate in this world? And even down to we make investments. How do we want our investments to operate in this world as well? And so we spend a lot of time on core values before deploying any capital, really before even talking to anyone. It's like, here's who we are and here's what it is that we do. Um, And that was time well spent because we've gone back to that over and over again. Our first um, core values is be human. Um, And you think that's pretty straightforward and easy, but, you know, to see the humanity in others, um, especially when you're working with entrepreneurs, especially when you're working with marginalized entrepreneurs, to be able to see their humanity and have an understanding of where they're coming from during these really highly stressful times has been really, really helpful for us in becoming better investors. FOMO. FOMO. One of the things you talk about as you give advice to entrepreneurs is building a personal advisory board, which is something I got to tell you, I've always found really hard because I'm bad at asking for help. I feel like I'm on everybody else's advisory board, but I have struggled and I talk about this. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's a, I think probably I need to go to like some sort of therapy about that. But assuming you get over that initial fear, how do you choose who to put on your advisory board and how do you actually make the most of that? Yeah, you know, your personal advisory board is very different than your corporate advisory board, right? Mm. Or your business advisory board. Mm. These are the people who are for the business of you. Um, Your corporate advisory board is usually what's best for the business um, and give you advice on that. Your personal is what's best for you as a person, as a human being. And I think that's super important as an entrepreneur because there's going to be times where you're going to be challenged quite significantly. And you're going to be stretched thin. And there's going to be times where you're going to have deep insecurities come out because inherently entrepreneurship, you're putting yourself out there. It's an incredibly vulnerable um, occupation or vocation, depending on where you're at. Like it's very, very vulnerable, right? And so you need the people who are in the business of you and who are supporting you. And so it could be, it could be a family member. It could be a, a trusted mentor, um, in my case, I was actually saying to someone, I put my, my sons on my personal advisory board. He's six years old. Um, and one of the, the jobs I say is you need someone who can make you laugh. And so he makes me laugh. And it's really hard to feel stressed about um, a particular investment's down round when, you know, my six-year-old is singing about toilet people. I mean, it's just really difficult <laughs> to like. All I can do is sit and laugh. You know, he's like has a whole rap about people who live in the toilet. And so, but but that sort of like person or in my case, and I think a lot of communities, particularly if you come from an immigrant community or a community of color, um, anytime you have money and it's publicized, there's sometimes family members who pop up who would like to utilize that money. Um, and for me, my mother serves as an enforcer, which I think is another great person to have in your advisory board, meaning um, she says no when I can't, particularly the family members. Um, And because it's it's a little bit hard to say no to them. Um, And so she'll say no for me. And, you know, she's a 75-year-old black grandma. Like, no one's going to, like, go against her. <laughs> like, like, like I mean, she's like, she's, her no is very final and very, very clear. And, but that, but how that helps me is that I don't have to assume that emotional weight, right, of telling them no. I don't have to take that on. And that emotional weight can be distracting from me building my business. Um, also, I put, you need a truth teller. You need someone who can tell you the truth that you hear, um, the truth that you may not want to want to hear, but they can tell you and you can hear it. 
There's a lot of people who will tell you the truth, but maybe you don't want to listen to them. And there's certain people who can get to you in a way and speak to you in a way that you really hear. And that's who you want on your advisory board. What I really like about that, I was just thinking, first of all, I want your mom on mine because I think I, you know, I need somebody <laughs> to help me to say no to stuff. So that's, she sounds like she'd be able to help me. But it's like thinking about the pain points in your life that aren't just financial, but emotional. It's like, oh, I feel uncomfortable when, and then thinking about the people in your life who can mm -hmm. come in and help you navigate those things. Yeah. It's very, it's a very fine point that it, I think a lot of times we don't think about it that way, but it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Now, I do want to ask you before we go, you know, the book, um, which I enjoyed reading and I thought was a really valuable contribution to the conversation, talks about, you know, you have this system where you have folks who are entitled and yeah. that, you know, they, they're, they are, the system really works in their advantage. And you have folks outside what you call builders who have to sort of navigate things in a different way because of the pattern matching and all the things we've talked about today. Now, that's why I think the entitled should pick this book up because, you know, it's for everybody. This is not just a book for people who are trying to, you know, break into the system. It's for the people who are in the system that are not opening the system. And so, mm -hmm. you know, assuming that we got that book into everybody's hands, what would be the thing, the first thing that you would ask people to do differently to help fix this problem? You know, it's interesting that you at answer or ask me that question because one of the things that's been most surprising about this book is how many rich white dudes like it. Um, mm. <laughs> like it that's like totally has blow my mind. I mean, we have, you know, Steve Case, who's the founder of AOL, is you know, endorsed the book and read it and was like, oh my God, I like learned so much. So you have like these like rich white guys who who like the book. I think the, the biggest thing I would say to entitles who read this book is to realize that you have a birthright. You're like Prince Harry, right? Prince Harry can move to California, but he'll always be a royal. He'll always get benefits of being a royal. Um, as a rich white guy, you have a birthright that you cannot give back. People give you privilege even if you don't want it. You can run away from it, but you automatically get this privilege. And so now that you're aware of that, use your privilege to bring someone else up, to help someone else. Um, I had a friend who I was talking to, this was after the 2016 election, very wealthy, very successful white guy who was just upset about what happened. And I let, I let him, you know, excuse my language, bitch for like five minutes. And then I said to him that same thing, you have a birthright, dude. You will get into rooms I will never get into. You will get into conversations I will never be allowed to. Seeing that, then bring people like me along. You are powerful. You are the boss. You can totally do that. Why can't you do that? And then he said something to me that I thought was really profound and I had never thought of as, um, you know, a black woman who's never, you know, out in front in that sort of way. And he said, you know, I never realized it. I, I didn't realize that there were 99.9% .9 of the people behind me. All I knew is I was looking forward and I wasn't Steve Jobs or I wasn't Bill Gates. I had never taken a moment to look behind and see, oh my God, I'm ahead of like so many people and like was sort of paralyzed and not realizing the power that comes with being in that position and how to utilize it. And so I would say to them, utilize it. You can invite someone with you to a meeting, you know, write a check, like write a check, um, you know, create partnerships and links, um, 
and, and just really step forward and use your privilege. Use, and, and more importantly, too, use your privilege as a shield for those who don't have it. All right, folks. The book is Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business When You're Not a Rich White Guy. If you want to find Catherine on Twitter, you can find her at, at Catherine Finney, and she spells her name K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. You can find her on Instagram at Hi, I'm Catherine. And of course, you can find her at her website, CatherineFinney.com. Catherine Finney, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.